All right, good afternoon. This is WPKN and WPKN. Uh, dog. nice to be along with you. Um, I've been threatening to bring this interview with Roger Stephens for some time, so we're finally going to get it in. Um, our, our schedule's finally meshed, and so we'll be doing that interview. Um, you heard from Kimani Marley. You also heard from um, Ziggy Marley and B.B. Um, King also doing... Um, Another one, Sweet 16. So, again, you're with um, probably top-notch radio, WPKN, the alternative, the real alternative, they say. Um, we got some good programming, some pretty good um, public affairs stuff. The real rarities. We're not, um, you know, top 40. However, um, Icon is in this Saturday. Here we are. So my, my next guest is Roger Stephens. He's an actor, lecturer, reggae archivist. Uh, uh, he's a photographer. He was um, the chairman of the actual um, Grammys, reggae Grammys for some time, an editor. I don't know what else, <laughs> what he haven't done. Um, Roger, I don't know where would your life would have gone if you didn't um, get that call two weeks into doing your radio show. Boy, I don't know. It would have been a probably very different life after 79 years. <laughs> I'm an old Brooklyn boy, you know. I, I grew up on Alan Freed and Jocko Henderson and pear-shaped Jack Walker and all those great 1950s disc jockeys and went to a lot of Alan Freed shows and always had rock and roll in my blood. I'm first-generation rock and roll. I was 12 in 1954 when Rock Around the Clock was number one and rock basically started from that period forward and uh, you know reggae music uh, filled all the needs I had uh, after years of listening to rock and folk music in the 60s and discovering Bob Marley changed my life and, and, and to have had the opportunity to spend two weeks on the road with him back in 1979 was one of the one of the greatest blessings of my life as, as you can imagine icon huh so uh, you had a radio show. You started a reggae show because you were introduced to reggae by the um, the article. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean it's a story I never get tired of telling because the, the prose was so powerful. Um, back in 1973, I'd never even heard the word reggae, and uh, there was a wonderful article in Rolling Stone um, in, in June of 1973 by a gonzo journalist from Australia named Michael Thomas, and he said, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. <laughs> I said, man, I don't know what that means, but I got to find this right now and I was living in Berkeley and I went out right away and I bought a copy of Catch a Fire and I saw The Harder They Come the next night and bought the soundtrack and from that moment forward my life was on a reggae trod and it's been almost half a century now that I've been devoted to spreading the word of Rasta and, and Jamaican culture and Bob Marley and his impact on the world. So, Roger, before we get into all this Marley stuff, um, reggae has lost over the last 12 to 18 months. Reggae has lost some really tremendous um, talents. Yeah, it looks like there's a, a new wave brewing, and that's always wonderful. Every generation needs its own artists to reinterpret the, the knowledge and wisdom of the past. And I, I think we're seeing some return to the roots in Jamaica, which I find very heartening. Okay, that's right. Um, yes, well, welcome to WPKN, first of all. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, so we're going to have fun. We're going to play some of this unreleased stuff. I gave my audience a sample of that stuff. And um, you're going to give me some great stories to go along with them. I hope so. Um, what I, when we were t- talking about doing this program, um, I, I decided that I wanted to put together uh, about a dozen of the most interesting, uh, mostly unreleased material. At one point, none of this was available to the public. Some of it is, is found now on, on YouTube and other parts of the Internet. But to have it all in one place, I, I hope your uh, listeners have their tape recorders going because we're, we're going to hit them with some really powerful Bob Marley rehearsals and uh, acoustic solo sessions, the, the bedroom tape that I found in Bob Marley's mother's bedroom back in uh, the late 80s. Uh, a whole lot of surprises. If you're a Marley fan, you're not going to want to miss a second of today's broadcast. And this stuff has never been played anywhere else. Basically, they've never been released anywhere well, else. Well, I've been I've been off the air for a long time, so I never got a chance to to play most of this stuff. Uh, there were discoveries that happened after I I left the reggae beat. The reggae beat. Uh, my participation in it uh, went from '79 to '87. We also had a syndicated show um, called Reggae Beat International, my partner Hank Holmes and I, that was syndicated to 130 stations all over the world. We were getting fan mail in Urdu and Swahili and Polish, and we couldn't read most of it. But uh, that that carried the message to all four corners of the world, and I still get feedback from that syndicated show. So, Raja, a lot of um, you know your work with Marty has been documented. Let's take a look, talk a little bit about the Whalers. How much can you tell us about the actual Whalers, the other guys, Bob Mar- I mean, Peter Tosh, um, Bunny Whaler, and those guys? How, how much engagement did you have with them? Well, um, you know, I got to know Bob toward the end of his life. And uh, after that, uh, around the same time, I, I met Peter. And Peter and I became very good friends. Uh, he didn't have any of his own material. It was always being begged off or stolen. And uh, he would call me three or four times from various places around the world and ask me to send him tapes of certain things. And I, I remember just a few days before he was killed in 87, he called me and said, you know, my No Nuclear War album has just finally come out, and I'm working on my next one, and I want to re-record Here Comes the Judge. You know, that song from around 1970 that he did for Joe Gibbs where he was naming all the terrible villains of history. And he wanted to remake it but change the names to Living Enemies. <laughs> and I would love to have heard uh, who who would have made that list. But Peter and I had a lot of fun together over the years. And uh, I, I just enjoyed being around him because the 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 fierce, fiery, angry Peter that you saw in most of those filmed interviews was was very different from what he was casually in private. And uh, he loved to laugh. He loved to play with the language. He called my city Hell A, <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> uh, he said he played in San Francisco, California, United States of Asatica, because there's nothing merry about America. It's Asatica. <laughs> so, yeah, he had an interesting play on words. Oh, yeah. And when I put the booklet together for the Honorary Citizen box set for Peter, uh, I did a whole page of words of the herbalist verbalist. He called the judge the grudge, and his manager was his damager, and 
Um, his producer was his reducer. But there was one word that I learned after the book went to press. I so wish I could have included. He called the Queen of England Queen Eliza bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had an interesting um, play, play, play on words. Um, and I, Bunny and I were close for a long time. Um, back in 1989, he asked me to co-write his autobiography with him. And uh, I worked with Leroy Jody Pearson, the founder of Nighthawk Records, who had released some, some music by, by Bunny. And he's a musician, and I'm not. So he would know the kinds of questions to ask that I wouldn't even think of. So the two of us, in October of uh, 1990, spent three weeks locked in a hotel room in Kingston with Bunny doing sessions that lasted, uh, at one time, 14 hours. And Bunny didn't even eat during those sessions. He would just drink water. And um, we got 64 hours of interviews telling the entire history of the Whalers from the time Bunny was a little boy and his father moved in with Bob's mother and they were raised as brothers, all the way through uh, Blackheart Man, his first solo album. Unfortunately, uh, Bunny abandoned the project after 10 years. I've got a box I'm looking at right now that holds 1,800 pages of Bunny's history of the Whalers. And he, I don't know, he he went off the rails in the last years of his life. And uh, I, I don't know what happened to him, but it's really sad that the book will never come out, I guess. So when you, when you say abandoned the project, I mean, he, he, so this book was never, would never be um, reproduced? Yeah. Yeah, after 10 years. And, and he didn't, didn't tell us. He, he just didn't answer our phone calls anymore or answer our emails. And... Uh, we we wrote three sample chapters, and we said, is this the format you would like the book to take? We, we're not going to proceed any further uh, until we get you know, approval uh, to to adapt the, the, the raw material of the interviews. I mean, he might have talked about uh, Judge Not Bob's first record eight different times over the course of three weeks, so you have to synthesize the essence of what he was telling us, and at the same time try to retain the flavor of his voice, which was often patois-infected, and you didn't want the patois so thick that, you know, foreign translators wouldn't understand it when they were printing it in French or, or Spanish. So it, it was a challenge to, to have all those things taken care of properly, and we wanted his approval. And for two years, we kept waiting for him to get back to us and tell us whether those chapters were all right. And finally, I called him, and um, he said, well, why don't you come to Florida and read them to me? And I said, what are you, five years old, Bunny? You can read. Read them yourself. And that's the last I heard from Bunny. After so ten years of your life has gone on the drain. Well, not ten years drain. of my life. Well, yeah. so, so, somebody at some point will release them, and um, you know, another yeah, but generation. Yeah, all would... of us icon who were alive during the times that the whalers were with us, who understand that period in a way that our children and grandchildren can't and never will. That's the sadness of of this, you know, for all the people who really loved the whalers back in the sixties and seventies and eighties. Uh, we they they probably won't live long enough to to see this. I guess some graduate student will take it thirty years from now and put it together, but it won't be the same. So, Roger, in real time, hanging out with the whalers and stuff, because I've yeah. seen interviews that you've done with Peter Tosh, and you you were um, almost challenging him, asking him um, because Peter had the, was purporting that um, 
you know, Chris Back Chris Backwell came along and broke broke the Whalers up, but the, Bob Marley's and the Whalers was actually had recorded um, uh, albums before that, before he came along. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Now, the problem I had with Peter, and I was trying to protect him from himself, because he was going around telling people that they were never called Bob Marley and the Whalers until Chris Blackwell got hold of them, and that is absolutely 100% false. It's the other way around. I even have a copy of uh, Simmer Down on, on Coxon, the very first Whalers record, attributed to Bob and the Whalers on the label. And there were several Bob Marley and the Whalers records on Coxon. And then in 1966, when they started their own label and they could call the label anything they want and call themselves anything they want, they called the Whale and Solem label, the group on it, Bob Marley and the Whaling Whalers. Now, that's when they had total control over their name, and that's the name they chose. And then you get to the Beverly's album in, in the 70, and, and that's Bob Marley and the Whalers. And then you get the two uh, uh, Lee Perry albums, and, you know, about four dozen tracks they did. Uh, and they're all Bob Marley and the Whalers. And then Chris comes along and just calls them the Whalers. He wanted them to be thought of as a rock band, like Traffic or somebody. So I, uh, when 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 Peter in that 1970 uh, or 1983 LA Reggae TV interview I did with him uh, said that they were never the uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers, I had a bag of my records with with me, and I just showed them to him, and I said, "Look, Peter, th 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 this is not right. This is not accurate." I'm not trying to embarrass him, but I'm trying to save him from himself because any casual Whalers fan would know that that was bull. And so, I think he, I think he respected me for it. We were certainly friends till the end of his life. So, um, in real time, again, hanging out with the Whalers, did, did yeah. you did you feel something special, uh, or this all came to light later on? I mean, oh no, I, I mean they they were tremendously special. I mean, you hear some of the interviews Chris Blackwell uh, did about them walking into his office back in '72, and he said, you know, they walked in like they were superstars, every one of them, and they were. You know, and and I was angry at Chris for a long time because he he kind of admitted that he broke the group up. Um, but what we got when the group broke up was three times the amount of music we would have had otherwise. There was a lot of tension when they signed with Island because Bob was getting the bulk of the songs on the albums and therefore the bulk of the writers' royalties. So he was you know, trying to let the other two have, have more than they normally would have had, but uh, still Bob was, you know, <laughs> making the most money out, out of them, whatever money Blackwell was giving them. And the others wanted their share of the pie. It was like the Beatles, you know, the center couldn't hold. There was too much talent there. And if, if the group hadn't broken up, we would never would have had Blackheart Man or Protest or Equal Rights. All, all those non, classics that non, were done non, by Non-nuclear non war, yeah, that's good. Well, I, I don't regret, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think we got, um, you know, three uh, things. And, and to be honest with you, I don't even think that um, uh, the music differs between them. I think it was, it was a three really good conscious reggae artists. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Blackheart Man is basically a Whalers album. Family Man is on there, and other people are singing back up to him from the Whalers. So, 
you know, they they had that that Whalers feel to their music. Uh, Peters was the most distinct among the three of them, I think. Um, and it's it's a damn shame Peter didn't live long enough to get everything out that was in him. Now, there's 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 two uh, there's two other original Whalers that a lot of people probably don't know about. Junior Braithwaite and uh, Beverly Kelso. Uh, and then there's also Cherry Green, or I mean Bramwell, who who rehearsed with him for two years and then was working and couldn't get out of work to go and cut Simmer down. So they got a girl that they saw at a talent contest a couple of nights before, and her name was Beverly Kelso, and they recruited her into the group. And uh, depending on who you believe, uh, the next day she was in the studio cutting songs with the Whalers as a part of the group. And Cherry and Beverly are on 30 Coxon tracks. 30. And they never made a dime. So, you know, they, my, my latest book is So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley, which Rolling Stone said of the 700 Bob Marley books out there, the headline of their review said this might be the best Bob Marley book ever. And um, it's, it's the first time, really, that Beverly and, and Cherry got their due. Uh, my friends, the Midnight Ravers at WBAI back there in New York, arranged in 2003 for me to finally meet Beverly and Cherry and I'd been trying for 20 years to get them to talk to me, but they were so bitter about never making any money, they didn't want to talk to anybody. And I finally convinced them that history needed their stories, and Cherry died shortly after the interview, so thank God they're both represented at great length in, in so much things to say, telling their time with Bob and Peter and, and Rita Bunny. Yeah, well, um, they, they have... we've got Junior Braithwaite and we've got Vision Walker. Junior was uh, the youngest member of the group, and according to everyone, uh, had the very best voice in the group, but his father moved to Chicago, so he had to follow him there and had a sad life and uh, came back to work with Bunny in the 80s and got murdered. Um, Vision Walker is still alive. Uh, he was the man who um, replaced Bob Marley briefly when Bob went to America in 1966 for about nine months. And he's on a lot of the early Rude Boy songs, too. And he's also on the reunion album. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different people who've been whalers over the years. Yeah, I don't think the story, you know, is told most times, you know, with um, the complete group. Okay, my guest is Roger Stephens. Um, Roger wears a, quite a few hats. We're going to get into a lot of his, his exploits a little, a little later on. You know, actor. Um, At least the ones we can talk about on the air. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, you you got this call um, in 1973, I think. Was it 73? You got a call about to to hit the road with uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Uh, no, that was 79. Uh, my partner, Hank Holmes, and I had just started uh, the only reggae show in Los Angeles uh, on a little tiny station called KCRW that had great plans for growth. But they were in a junior high school classroom um, about the size of my my bedroom. <laughs> and the whole station was in that little little room. And uh, we were on the air for about six weeks with the reggae beat when Island Records called us and asked if we would mind going on the road for two weeks with Bob Marley. 
So we said, yeah, that that would be okay. You, you was you, you weren't too busy for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had we had a lot of interesting experiences during that time. Uh, I had uh, a bag filled with the rarest of Bob's records, so they knew that uh, Hank and I were very serious collectors and really had gotten deeply into the music. But now that we have access to Bob and the band, we want to find out a whole lot more. So. Um, we uh, we set up a couple of evenings for him when he wasn't uh, playing um, at the Sunset Marquee Hotel just off Sunset Strip near the Whiskey and, and uh, Roxy nightclubs. In fact, he played his final show in L.A. at the Roxy that, that second week he was here. And um, the first of the two nights, Jeff Walker, his former publicist at Island Records, who had been in Jamaica during the Smile Jamaica assassination attempt and concert, brought footage that he had shot um, of Bob uh, hiding out up at Chris Blackwell's place and trying to decide whether he was going to do the show after all, after he was shot, and uh, also filmed uh, the entire concert. And Bob had never seen that footage, and this was, gee, three years later. So um, he set up an evening in uh, this big, they called it a bungalow, but it was a big two-story house where he and the band were staying. And uh, there were about 50 people in the main room that night. And we, uh, we got to watch Bob watching Bob and uh, doing that fiery performance on December 5th, 1976, when he opens his jacket and shows where the bullet goes across his heart and then points to his arm where the bullet is still in his arm. And uh, there at his side is Rita Marley in a hospital gown, having just fled the hospital with a bullet lodged in her scalp and a bloody bandage on her head, singing back up. And to my mind, and I write about that and, and so much things to say, this was the most phenomenal musical event uh, experience in, in all of 20th century music. What, what can you compare that to? guy standing there singing with a bullet in his arm and his wife back up with a bullet in her head. Uh, you know, there's just no comparison to any moment in pop history. So that was interesting. And then the next night, the Canadians, Randy Torno and Jim Lewis, who had made a film called Heartland Reggae in part at the One Love Peace concert, uh, brought their footage, which was being edited in L.A. at the time, and that was a year and a half after that April uh, 78 peace concert. So Bob had never seen the footage of him bringing Michael Manley and Edward Siaga on stage together and making him shake hands in front of 40,000 people. And afterwards, he was asked what was going through his mind as he was standing there between these two men in whose names so many thousands of people had been murdered. What was he thinking? And Bob said, well, I'm an, no politician, but if I'm an, a politician, only one thing for me to do, kill them both. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a revelation, as you can imagine, I got. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, Bob Marley, the person, um, what, what, what don't we get, uh, you know, from engaging with him personally? What was he lacking as a human? No, being? no, 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 no. What, what would you? What can you tell us that um, that's not that's not out there? Oh, 
about him, so, you know, just, what, just engaging with like him. Privately, you mean? Yeah, just engaging with him. Oh, yeah. Well, pretty quiet. He was a watcher. He was a listener. But it was fascinating, like that Monday evening with the 50 people watching uh, the Smile Jamaica footage. Everyone in the room was keenly aware of Bob at every moment. His vibe affected everything that went on in the room. And there was a part of the documentary where they go back the day after the shooting, and Family Man puts his fingers in the bullet holes where the bullet just missed shooting him in the head. And when that scene came on, Bob started to laugh and laugh, and the whole room just froze. What's he laughing at? And I asked Family Man about that when we were on tour together in 2013. I spent two months on the road as the Whalers' opening act on the Survival Revival Tour. And I, he remembered that moment, and uh, he said, well, I think Bob just thought he could cheat death forever. But it was an unnerving moment. So he, he, he was a quiet guy. He, he sought out other people's opinions. I remember a story that um, um, Garth Dennis from The Wailing Souls told me. He had just been on tour, and in 76 he came back to Jamaica, and he went to see Bob at Tough Gong, and Bob said, so uh, what are you doing these days, Garthy? And he says, oh, nothing much, just chilling. And Bob said, in these times? (laughs) (laughs) Really upset with him. (laughs) You know, you've got to be engaged. And uh, the fact that Bob knew he was going to die at 36 uh, affected everything he did, especially in his later years. He really realized that he had only a short time to accomplish what he needed to to get done. And his mother told me he only slept two or three hours a night at most. And I think that debilitated him terribly. And, And that's probably another reason he died so young. So you think that he knew he would have died, um, early as a well he, he yeah i mean i've got three witnesses to that so that's good enough for me um in 70 in 66 he went to the states to delaware where his mother had married a man named booker in 1962 and he went to stay with her and get a job so they could earn enough money to have the whalers start their own record label they were tired of getting ripped off by coxon and um there were two young friends of his, Ibis Pitts and Dion Wilson. And uh, Ibis had a little African arts and crafts store across the street from Bob's mother's house. And one day in the summer of 66, they were talking with Bob and saying, oh, man, you're, you're going to be a big star and you're going to make lots of money and you have a nice long life and everybody's going to know your works and everything. And Bob interrupted him. He says, no, no, man, no, man. He says, when I'm 36, I'm going to die. And they were they were so shocked by this that they went and told his mother. And I've got a video interview with her here at the archives uh, where she confirms that they came to her that day and said Bob told us he was going to die at 36. So he was 24 years of age at the time, and that's an odd thing for a young man to be thinking about, let alone be spot-on accurate. So there was something going on with Bob on a psychic level. He's like Stevie Wonder. He's... Uh, He's very psychically attuned on on levels that most 
most normal humans aren't. You're tuned to WPKN 89.5 FM, also WPKN.org. We're coming to you from Bridgeport, the town on the sound, and uh, we will stay here. We will relocate at some point, but we'll, we'll, we will be actually downtown Bridgeport pretty soon. So it's nice that you could be along with us. It's some pretty good weather, uh, you know, um, nice uh, end of July weather. Um, oh, you're lucky. No <laughs> hurricanes, huh? And no, um, no, it's not raining today either. It's been a oh. wet, a wet summer for the time for the past. Rain. What? What? What is that peculiar thing of which you speak, Icon? Rain. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've had. Lots I live of it. in Southern California. <laughs> we've had lots of it. Oh, God. and we um, actually had a rainstorm this week. We we had an overnight rain, which is, I think, uh, almost impossible. But, uh, July rain in L.A. is utterly unheard of. But, Roger, also, the fires are down this year, yes? Yeah, the fires are just awful. I was just up at Dr. Dredd from Ross Records' new home in wine country in Calistoga. And uh, this is gorgeous country that people come from all over the world to see. And the hills around there are just blackened from the fires that almost destroyed the town. It's very, very sad, and it'll take you know generations to grow back to where it was earlier. Oh wow! Do you know about Doctor Dredd's triumph with the uh, Record Store Day release that he produced for Bob Dylan? Yeah, it's a remix of um, Joker Man. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And Honey Bee, who's a, a white reggae singer who lived in Jamaica for uh, 14 years, has a little riff at the beginning of the dub mix that Doc, Dr. Dredd made where she goes, Joker man, what a man them say. <laughs> so, Raja, where did you get your credibility from? Um, how long took you, it, it, it took you to get um, fully embraced in the reggae community? I mean... Well, I, I think... That happened uh, probably when when the reggae beat show started. Um, my partner Hank uh, was the reason I, I wanted to do the show. I, I would never have attempted to do a reggae show on my own. But when I met Hank in 1978, he had 8,000 Jamaican records and uh, had been reading the Jamaican and, and British uh, reggae magazines and articles in the newspapers uh, for at least seven years and just really knew the music inside out. And I figured with his collection and knowledge and my radio background, which goes back to WVOX in 1961, um, we, we could do a great show. And it took us a year to find a station willing to put us on. There was, wasn't a single commercial station that that wanted to touch it and uh, we went to the Pacifica station and they said well we can't in good faith put you on the air playing reggae because you're white you know this great bastion of supposed liberalism and they're prejudiced against us because we're white people oh you're white so, Roger yeah I am white <laughs> white is a ghost but dreader than most <laughs> So, uh, you know, in desperation, we went to this tiny 110-watt station in the junior high school classroom, and it became this gigantic powerhouse. They just opened a $38 million station in L.A. Hmm. So we, we helped put that station on the map. Our show made more money than any other weekly show on that station in its history. And our first fun drive we made in three hours what they had made in the previous 10 days total. 
So reggae was a force uh, to be reckoned with. And I think from that point forward, you know, the artists knew about us. They knew that we were familiar with their works. We weren't going to ask them a bunch of stupid questions. And we had the records to back it up. And I would say that I don't think there was ever an artist who came on uh, the reggae beat for an interview who didn't find records released under their names that they had never seen before. And I'm talking about Dennis Brown, I'm talking about Alton Ellis, I'm certainly talking about uh, Peter Tosh. And uh, that that was a joy, too. So the artists loved coming on our show. Commercial-free Sunday afternoons, the whole city listened. It was the most popular non-commercial show in Southern California for years. And... Uh, I was going to Sunsplash at the request of uh, Tony Johnson and the other promoters, and uh, they let me be a guest MC at several of the Sunsplashes. And I did a lot of radio work whenever whenever I was in Jamaica, and uh, you know I think people just liked my enthusiasm. And then I got invited in 1984 to found the uh, Reggae Grammy Committee. So let's talk a little bit about that, Roger. Yeah. So why does the word, the name Marley is, is uh, involved in most reggae, reggae Grammys. <laughs> you know, we have no idea how many people even vote in the reggae category. And uh, maybe the bulk of them have no idea what reggae is except for Bob Marley. So a lot of it is name recognition. It has nothing to do with sales. It has nothing to do with quality, as you've seen by some of the things that have won the Grammy over the years. And, um, you know, name recognition, I think it boils down to that. Not that I take anything away from Ziggy or any of the other Marleys who've, who've won the Grammy. You know, they're all fine artists. They all make really nice music. They're, they're a credit to, to Jamaica. But um, it's not always the highest quality that wins. Okay. And we have no control over that. I, so, mean, I, I didn't even vote. Burning Spear didn't talk to me for 10 years because he thought I was personally denying him the Grammy. He was nominated nine times at that point. And I said, look, I don't even vote to maintain my neutrality. I have nothing to do with it. It's the yeah. members of Naris. But when you're carrying the name, the you're carrying the name of, um, <laughs> you're the chairman of the board. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, so, I mean, that's all the more reason to be neutral. Yeah, but I'm saying one would think that you would have some influence, that's all. How can I have influence? It's You know, there's thousands and thousands of members of Naris. I don't know who they are. I, I, I just, you know, and I, and I wouldn't express uh, any uh, preference. Even if I, I didn't vote, I, I, I would not make my preferences known. Um, so I, I, I valued that neutrality. I didn't want anybody. You know, Ika Mouse almost beat me up one day in the, the uh, dressing room of the House of Blues uh, on, on Sunset Strip. Um, I walked in to say hi, and uh, the dressing room was full of young people. And he grabs me by the collar and he says, "You, why you no give me no Grammy?" Why you just give it to them white Marley boys? I know why. I'm too black. And I said, Mouse, I have nothing to do with who wins the Grammy. If you want to win a Grammy, I'll tell you right now, here and now, how you can win a Grammy. Yeah, what? I said, the next album you put out, change your name to Ika Marley. <laughs>
There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he didn't win one. He didn't do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, nice that you could be along with us today, Roger. So, Roger, you um want to sample some of these great music that you got here. Let's um let's get something going, and um you know we'll be what back. What do you want to start with? You have the list there. We can go with I Need You. You can tell us a little bit about I Need You. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the most important books that I've been involved with, I've done seven on Bob and, and uh, reggae history, is Bob Marley and the Whalers, The Definitive Discography by Leroy Jody Pearson and myself. And it is, to this day, the only true discography ever done for a Jamaican artist. And the necessity uh, in a true discography is, is multifold. You have to have the names of the singers and the players of instruments, what instruments they played, the um, engineer's name, the producer's name, the studio in which it was recorded, the number of tracks, at least from the old days, uh, on the master tape, and most importantly, the... Um, the numbers, the matrix numbers that are scratched into the wax before the label, because they tell you what part of the master tape was used to press that particular record. So as I look into this book uh, for I Need You, the song we're about to hear, which is uh, one that touches my doo-wop heart very deeply, uh, the vocal is by Bob, and uh, Bunny, Peter, and Rita are all singing harmony in September 1964. Carl McLeod is on drums, Lloyd Spence on bass, the great Ernest Wranglin on guitar, Richard Ace on piano, and uh, it's produced by uh, Clement Dodd, Coxon Dodd. So uh, let's hear one of the most beautiful harmony songs that the Whalers ever made very early in their career called I Need You.
Hey, Roger, this is um, basically all harmony. Yeah, that's an a cappella version of the song that just sends chills up my spine when I hear it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, never been released. Not that version, no. Not, not mixed either. It doesn't seem that to be mixed yeah. as well. Yeah, it's a cappella. It's a, a special private tape that I was able to find. Oh, wow. All right, so Roger Stephens, we're running through uh, his um, engagement with, you know, personally with Bob Marley. Uh, so l- let's go back. So Bob Marley basically came to Kingston and joined um, the, the, the guys met in Kingston, which is Bunny, Peter. Well, no, I mean, Bob and Bunny knew each other from very, very young but, ages. But musically, they came together as a group in Kingston. Yeah, but they, they were rehearsing. Well, Bob started to uh, rehearse and practice around 1959 um, with Joe Higgs. A man named Errol paid Joe Higgs to tutor Bob Marley. And uh, Bob uh, was anxious to start recording, and even though Joe told him he wasn't quite ready, he went to uh, Beverly's, to Leslie Kong, and auditioned uh, with a song that he was covering, a country and western song. It turns out Bob did not write Judge Not. It's a country and western cover. And... um, he he released that, it flopped, and then he made another country and western uh, cover called One Cup of Coffee by a guy called Claude Gray, and um, that flopped too. So he went back and continued to sing in the kitchen with Bunny, and then they met uh, Peter Tosh, who had just arrived uh, from his home in Savlamar uh, to seek his fortune in Jamaica, and he had a guitar, so they recruited him. He was the only person they knew who had a guitar. And uh, other people, uh, Ricardo Scott, for one, and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of other people passed through that kitchen and yard where where they were singing almost constantly. And eventually they they went to Coxon for an audition in in 1964 uh, in June. And uh, uh, my book, uh, So Much Things to Say, has uh, at least three different accounts of the audition and the first session. And they're from people who were there for all of those events. And their memories are totally different. So we're going to let the historians argue that. I, I wanted my book to be the raw material of history so that you know everybody got a chance to tell their story. And I think one of my favorite reviews of, of all for so much things to say came from the, the poet and teacher uh, Kwame Dawes, who said the book was a triumph of the story.
storytelling virtuosity of the Jamaican people. It's not Timothy White making up bedroom talk and all kinds of conversations that he had no access to. It's, it's Jamaicans telling the story in their own words. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so Judge Not was actually Bob Marley's very first song? Yeah. Not one cup of coffee? No. All right, here we go. So the, the guys went to um, to Coxon and, um, you know, he tried to work them out, I guess, try to get them ready. I, at one point, he said they weren't ready. He didn't he didn't think they were ready. Yeah, but if you talk to Seiko, um, uh, who brought them to the audition, he said they were in the studio uh, that same night. And um, or it could have been the next morning. Uh, they they seem to be ready. They had but there's a story out there that practiced for years. No, no. There's a story out there that Coxon like told them that they weren't ready or they should well, wait. That's one of the stories, and it's in my book too. But it's not the only story. Virgins. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, you know the epigram for my book, of course, is there are no facts in Jamaica, only versions. There we go. <laughs> okay, so at you some weren't p- there. I wasn't there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so at some point, um, um, so the guys actually got together. They they released their very first album, Peter Bob and Bunny. Um, was that Concrete Jungle first album? No, that was um, no, no. The, the first album was a collection of Cox and singles. Cox and stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. The so Wailing Whalers. Um, when basically when um, Blackwell came around, he released um, was it Concrete Jungle? Catch a Fire. Catch a Fire was the first. Catch a Fire, sure. That's right. And then that, of course, sort of brought them international at that point. Yeah, I mean, they knew about them in Britain because of the Lee Perry sessions and because of the Leslie Kong album. They'd both been uh, released in, in England. Um, but Catch a Fire put them on the pop culture map. Uh, Catch a Fire was promoted as a rock album. It had very special packaging, like a Zippo lighter. And it was called The Whalers, so they thought it was a band, not just Bob yeah, Marley or really Peter or Bunny. Yeah. And um, it got great critical response. And uh, then they released Burning, and uh, between the release of Catch a Fire and Burning, uh, Bunny quit the group because Blackwell told him he wanted to play them to play in freak clubs. And uh, <laughs> Bunny said, what's freak clubs? And he said, yeah, that's where... Uh, you know, men get together with men and women get together with women and they do drugs and they freak out. And But he says, well, I, I don't want to play for those things. Why don't you put us in the, you know, technology colleges and, you know, decent places. And says, no, I want to break you in, in the freak club. So Bunny quit the group. And so at that time, Peter Tosh was Tosh left. I mean, Tosh was there. Yeah, he had a few more months and, and did a little mini tour in the fall of 1973 in what, England, but what? got sick and, and they had to cancel the rest of the tour. And that uh, was the end of Peter and the Whalers. Another thing was um, Bunny didn't want to tour as well. No, he didn't really. He didn't really he, want he to tour. He didn't like touring. He didn't fly, like flying in the Iron Bird. Yeah. I, in fact, when I was working with him on his first uh, foreign uh, appearance in uh, 1986, uh, when he finally started to tour again, his first foreign show was here in L.A., and uh, he was at the house the next day, and we got a call from the David Letterman show saying that 
this was on a Monday, and they said uh, our, our Tuesday uh, musical guest just canceled, and we'd like to have Bunny Whaler come to uh, uh, to play on the Letterman show tomorrow. And uh, we'll we'll get him a ticket on the plane tonight to fly back. And Bunny says, uh, well, I'm, I'm not flying at night. And I said, why, Bunny? He says, you can't see at night. Hmm. <laughs> I said, Bunny, have you ever heard of radar? Have you heard, you know, there's thousands of flights at night every night of the week. You know, it's safe. You can fly at night. Nope, nope, I'm not going to fly at night. So he blew off the Letterman show, and that would have been a big feather in his cap. Yeah, that, that would have been helped him enormously. Absolutely. I, I, I think Peter Tosh was, um, well, I heard Chris Backwell say, Bunny was straight up. He would always know. Peter Tosh would be yes, then no. So he, so he actually rathered um, dealing with Bunny because Bunny would give him a straight up answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. All right. So we got more music for you. This is WPKN, WPKN.org. Uh, what we got coming up? I think we got No Woman, No Cry gospel version. There we go. This was the start, the launch of a gospel um, uh, era for the Whalers? Well, they had done gospel songs under different names for uh, Coxon. Um, they had they had gospel single uh, singles out on uh, the Tabernacle label that was strictly gospel music. Uh, so you know, and that's their, all their background is in you know Christian gospel choirs and stuff like that that uh, they were exposed to as, as children. So this is a very interesting early early study of the song that became one of his best known and best loved anthems. This is the gospel version of. No woman, no cry. I'll share with you, yeah, my 
There we go. <laughs> What'd you think of that one? That was pretty much the original version, the the the, the, the first well, that version. Was the original uh, way he was conceiving the song as kind of a gospel song there, and uh, I'm not sure who the women singing behind him are. This might have been done in England. Uh, there's there's no way of uh, telling precisely who the rest of the people on. Okay. Um, oh. So, uh, let's see, Marley's life. Let's talk a little bit about um, the women. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a, a good way to introduce the next song. Um, there were a lot of women in Bob's life. He told his cousin uh, that he had 19 kids. Really? Yeah. Um, Jonathan Demme was making a, a documentary about Bob. I, I was uh, the associate producer of that film, and it was eventually rejected by the Marley family, uh, probably because it was too black. It was too much about Rastafari, which is what I liked about the film. And Jonathan went to Nine Mile and interviewed Bob's cousin, and the cousin said, yeah, Bob told me I, he had 19 kids. So, um, so Rita, of course, was the wife. She was pretty much always around, I, I imagine, even when he had other affairs. Well, I mean, they they lived in different places. Um, I don't know whether she was over always around. Well, she was the backup singer too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. and and she. 
she became like a caretaker for him on on the road, you know, and uh, she was well aware of all the different women in his life, and she had different men in her life, too. She tried to divorce Bob in in the mid-60s, not long after they were married. Uh, that's that's a big part of my uh, book about in the early chapters of so much things to say you'll you'll read about that uh, as told by Beverly Kelso who was one of her best friends at the time. So, but and that that never happened. So that actually. marriage always had had problems. So apparently she had other lovers, and I guess that was an understanding. <laughs> Well, well, okay, so Ra- Roger, what, what, what did you see? What, what, what was the relationship like? What did you see? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I only saw the later years. Uh, so um, they, they, they were cordial. They were friendly. Um, you know, they, they each had their own roles, and uh, they, they kind of kept out of each other's business. I think it mustn't have been easy for, for Rita. And, and especially when Bob said he was never married, you know, when he told reporters that Rita was his sister. And uh, I've got several interviews where he says that. Yeah. Okay. But but they actually got married really early in the game. Like, yeah. You're talking about 60s? Yeah, well, I, 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 that was at Coxon's insistence, and uh, Peter and Bunny weren't even invited to the wedding. They didn't even know what was going on. That's the, you'll read about that and so much things to say. That was an incredible thing to happen because they had uh, agreed that none of them would get married until they really made it big and could afford to have families. And Bob went behind their back and got married because Coxon insisted he do that because he was going to America to see his mother. And if he decided to stay there, he couldn't bring his girlfriend up. But if she was his wife, they'd have to let her in. Yeah. Well, I, I think the fact that they were married also um, created um, a lot of um, stability after his, he died. Like, especially, oh, yeah. especially, look at Peter Tosh. You know, his estates was all over the place until I guess they, they figured it out. Yeah. So, but anyway, so let's just like that. We'll go right into the next song. Let's see. Okay, this is very interesting. This is most probably. From 1974, after Bunny and Peter had left the group, Bob was looking to have some women sing back up to him at that point. And this is in England, um, in his apartment, uh, I think toward the top floor of a, a building in London. And he's with Delroy Washington. Um, Delray had a, a really interesting kind of jazz reggae group in, in London in the late uh, 70s called Isis. They had a couple of albums uh, out that are really, really beautiful works. And he and Bob were very close. And in this, uh, he, the percussion is, is Delroy. He almost sounds like he's turned a garbage pail upside down and is beating on the, on the pail. And uh, Bob is talking to these two women, and um, he's making up songs based on the conversation. And um, one of them is very uncomfortable, uh, maybe ill, and just kind of... Not, 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 not getting in the swing of things, and everybody else is party time, and um, uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, sample of how Bob flirts with women and how Bob writes his music by playing off the 
everyday conversation of what is going on around him. So uh, uh, there's one thing that throws the date off for me. Uh, One of the women says rub-a-dub, and I don't know whether in 1974 rub-a-dub was a phrase that was being used. So there's a slight possibility this is from the late 70s, but uh, even Delroy Washington didn't remember anything about this session when I talked to him. But uh, I I place this as 1974 before he got the I-3 to sing behind him. This is my second favorite of, of all this new stuff. Oh, good. Oh, good. I thought you'd like it. Well, your listeners are in for a treat. I, I don't think I've ever broadcast this anywhere before. Yes, could you keep a conversation? I'm loose. Could you say a few words of gentleness so my life won't be sad? Come on, baby. The street is busy, everybody getting home from work. Except for me, I don't work. Nobody would hire me. The first thing they don't, they don't like the way I look. And I won't change it. Because of the inspiration. Oh, you're talking about inspiration now. Yeah. That's what I like. Now everybody can talk. Somebody keep their minds closed.
Thank you. 
Sounds pretty loose. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think of that one, Icon? It's different. I like it. That was my second favorite on, on you know, of all this. Um, so, th- this this was just a, a casual sort of um, encounter. It was just a hangout session with Bob and his friend Delroy Washington and a couple of young ladies, maybe sisters. And, uh, you know, they, one of them is much more anxious to jump into the fun than the other. And uh, Bob is trying to bring both of them more out of themselves. And uh, it, it, it's, you're like a fly on the wall in the room with Bob having a really loose, enjoyable time with, with people who like to make music as he does. So it's it's a very special, intimate tape of Bob that I've always really loved. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. I felt, I felt, Would you I felt, love to have been in that room? I actually felt like I was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's the same feeling you'll have when we play the bedroom tape at the end. <laughs> All right. This is WPKN and WPKN.org. Roger Stephens, a true heavyweight. Roger, you, you've been uh, dubbed as one of the 10 most in- influential uh, person in reggae music. How do you feel about that? Uh, I'm astonished. <laughs> Taken aback. Um, uh, it, it came out of the blue, and uh, I'm, I don't know. I, well, I, I think because um, for one, you had the access, you know, to to the Marlies. Had access. I had a radio show. I had a television show. And I you did. And you did a lot of show, interviews. I had a magazine. Uh, that lasted 27 years, called The Beat. I had the uh, 20, 24 years, I think I was the chairman of the Reggae Grammy Committee, uh, first speaker at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, all of those things conspired to bring me deeper into the inner circles, and I, I tried to... You know, I did virtually all of that for free, and, um, you know, so I was suspected of being a CIA agent because I was, somebody must be paying me to do this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, and I just, so, so basically, I want everybody to have the same experience of this music and culture that I've been having because it's so rich and I so mean, positive. All of this sort of happened by accident, right? Total. There was nothing contrived. Accident. There was nothing... You know, no, it's just one step on top of another. You know, I never planned any of these things. Oh wow. Okay, so yeah, all right. So Marley, um, so the 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 whalers pretty much has broken up. They they you know. Bu- By the end of '73, Bob was wondering what the heck he's going to do. And who's going to be with him now? And how is his music going to be changed by this? And. Um, I think this next track will will show you how the transition started to come about. It's Lively Up Yourself, and it's a uh, 1974 uh, rehearsal of of this song. And 
we'll we'll see you know how how Bob is shifting into a, a whole different gear that will bring him to the heights of international stardom. Okay, let's get in right into it. I will say, lively up yourself and don't be no tracks. Yeah, lively up yourself, go right is another bag. Yeah. You're gonna rock so, you rock so I like you never did before, yeah You dip so, you dip so Oh baby, drip to my door You come so, you come so Oh, like you did before Scan so, you scan so Don't be broke as you're a whore You wanna be free, you got to be free from within. Light me 
Live it up yourself. Yeah. Bob double-tracking himself, singing with himself, pushing him to new heights. <laughs> really fun to hear these, you know, very loose interpretations of songs by Bob when he's just singing for the pure joy of singing. Yeah, he does. It's fun stuff, fun stuff. This is 89.5 WPKN, WPKN.org. Roger Stephens with Icon here. We're just pretty much bringing you all this wonderful stuff for free. <laughs> <laughs> the way it should be. So, Roger, why did you sit on these these um, tapes for this long? Um, I don't own the rights to them. I can't release them. Um, I have played um, a lot of what we're hearing today to uh, Stephen and Ziggy and Damien, and um, they basically shrug their shoulders and some of the more intimate things like I'm loose they go oh mommy would never let us release this and it's a shame because there's so many wonderful treasures uh, all these years 40 years after his passing that are still unknown to the greater Marley fandom out there oh wow But you know I'm not a bootlegger I don't deal with bootleggers and uh, I don't like bootleggers and uh, so I, I try to be totally legal in everything I do. So talking about legal, let's talk a little bit about the archives, Roger. Yeah. So you've got pretty much, uh, so this is easily pr- pr- the the biggest probably um, Bob Marley's collection of artifacts. Easily. Well, I can only go by what people like the Whalers Band tell me, who've been you know around the world 15 times and met all their major fans and seen all the major collections, and they tell me there's nothing on earth like like the reggae archives here. It now fills seven rooms of the house. Uh, I had a major exhibition at the Queen Mary uh, in 2001. They took 6,000 things out of the house and framed them. And so that stuff has been in storage for the past 20 years because it was too big to bring back to the house. Everything was in frames. So some of the most precious things in the collection I haven't even seen in 20 years. But, um, you know, I've been working toward getting the collection to Jamaica where it truly belongs. And um, I I can't talk much about things publicly, but but things are are moving along in a very positive way. But that is your hope, to get the the collection to Jamaica. Wouldn't it be great to have a reggae museum in Montego Bay and, um, you know, all, all these treasures that people have shared with me over the past 48 years, uh, finally having a place where they can be shared with, with everybody. Or it can be uh, California, and then we can just go there. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so, you know, hopefully I'll have an announcement in the not-too-distant future. It's my life's goal, and I recently turned 79, and I want to be around long enough to help guide the construction of the museum and the design of the exhibits. And, you know, jaw-willing, uh, this, this will eventually come to pass. Jamaica needs to know the breadth of its cultural influence around the world. I think they're very naive about that. And uh, as someone said to me recently, you know, anything over five years old in Jamaica, nobody even thinks about it anymore. And that's got to change. I mean, they created a culture that has influenced the entire world. 
And um, in fact, there is a book that I just wrote the introduction to that came out last week by Martin Hausman from Holland called The Reggae Nation. And it's a big, gorgeous, full-color book. It weighs about five pounds. And it is about the penetration of reggae and Rasta and Bob Marley in particular all over the world. And it goes from the bottom of the Grand Canyon to remote Pacific Ocean islands and uh, tells you how reggae has been adapted into so many cultures and mostly through the direct influence of Bob Marley and his music, The Reggae Nation, a really great book. Okay, we have five in. Let's keep going. Okay, let's see. Um, Next up is the Talk Too Much rehearsal. I think probably in London, and it's got a really great hook to it. So this is Bob Marley, mid-70s, Talk Too Much.
Yes, this is WPKN and WPKN.org. Welcome to WPKN Saturday evening. Roger Melser, Roger Stefan is my guest. Roger Melser is my good friend, record <laughs> producer. And we're just running through some unreleased, uh, unmixed, uh, pretty good stuff. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you like to hear Stephen or Ziggy record that, make it their own? It's such a great hook. Ba 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 ba. It's coming. It's coming. Some of these songs, you hear them once and you never get them out of your head. That's right. The hooks are so cool. Yeah, I, I would like to make a livication uh, for that song to my dear friend, the night nurse, Amy Wachtel. Oh, the night nurse. Yes. Um, <laughs> who uh, She and I go back um, many, many years when she founded the CMJ reggae music charts and helped push reggae into more commercial territory. And she has devoted her life to promoting this music. And I love her like a sister. And I know she's out there today listening. So Yeah, the, night, the night nurse is actually on here on, um, every, on Fridays, right? On every other Friday. Yeah, every other Friday. That's right. And she knows her stuff. There you go. Yes, out. she does. She's been there and done that and is still doing it. She makes Icon <laughs> look like nothing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Roger, let's see. We got an hour to go. We want to get it all in. Yeah, let's just push music this hour. Uh, the next one up is an alternate rat race uh, with a different lyric. Um, uh, some a uh, some a chicken, some a scratch, some a bun, some a batch, and I've never been able to get a, a straight answer to that. Uh, many years ago, I played this on the Columbia station, and um, seven people called, and they gave us seven different answers, and each one said everybody else was wrong. Uh, some a chicken, some a scratch. Maybe that refers to Lee Perry. Maybe not. Some a bun, some a batch, or a bun. Maybe a bun is an unwanted child um and maybe a batch i don't know what the relationship between bun and batch is there so uh this is a version that got pressed on a blank single with a different matrix number from the released version and uh, is one of the rarest and most sought after uh, collector's items this is the alternate version to rat race
Rat Race. There's another alternate uh, lyric in there, too, of note, in addition to the Bun Batch Chicken Scratch one. Uh, this song was banned in Jamaica, and Bob withdrew it from sale. Uh, it was made in September of 75, and when my wife Mary and I first went to Jamaica in June of 76, the week the national state of emergency was declared, uh, there were no Bob Marley records for sale in Bob Marley's record shack in, in Kingston. And um, they, uh, this version that we just heard changes don't involve Rasta in your say-say or gossip. Rasta no work for no CIA. We just heard him sing, don't involve Rasta in your misery. Much stronger line, Rasta no work for no CIA. Mm. So how long it took you to... Um adapt the, the fatwa to understand it well oh i still don't i mean when i in the old days when ross michael and joe higgs and i would get together they they both lived here in la um once they started talking to each other it might have been swahili and i remember doing a uh, an interview early on uh, on my tv show with uh Muru baruka and he said wapanam in med <laughs> when I got the tape and was transcribing the interview, I listened to that over and over and over again, whopping them in a bed. And I recorded it at seven and a half on a reel-to-reel tape recorder and played it back at half speed. And I got whopping in a Ed. He's saying, what's happening in his head? Whopping in a Ed. Dropping all the H's. But when you hear whopping them in med. Yeah, the Jamaicans do that. It's difficult for an American to follow. Yeah, they don't really um, pronounce the H's. Yeah, they drop all the H's and put H's where it doesn't belong. So heart is something you hang on the wall, and art is what beats in your chest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I happen to know that um, Waiting in Vain is one of your favorite songs. So, oh, God, it is my favorite, and it's the way I met Bob. And the I-Cheese would never play it live, you said. They would never play it live uh, because um, Judy and Rita thought it was about Cindy. But Tyrone Downey told me he wrote the song years earlier. So it really had nothing to do with, with Cindy, if we are to believe Tyrone. Um, and uh, I never met Bob Fleshickly until 1978 in uh, Santa Cruz in uh, Central California. I was living in Big Sur that summer, novelizing a couple of screenplays for Hollywood screenwriters. And Bob came to do two shows in Santa Cruz. We got tickets for both, and we got in there early. And it was like a high school gym with bleachers on three sides, and the stage was only about maybe two feet high, and the soundboard was in the middle of the dance floor. And when we walked in, um, there was a tall, skinny guy with little nubber dreads just starting to sprout, standing by the soundboard, and I figured he had something to do with the band. And I said, pardon me, sir, um, are you guys going to do Waiting in Vain tonight? And he says, why? I said, oh, that's my favorite Bob Marley song, especially that incredible lead guitar line that Junior Marvin plays. He says, you want to meet Bob? I mean, just like that. <laughs> I, I was speechless. I said, yeah, can I bring my wife? He said, sure. So we go walking down backstage down this long corridor, and he says, uh, what's your name? And I said, well, I'm Roger. This is my wife, Mary. He says, hi, I'm Junior Marvin. So 
so I said the right thing to the right guy at the right time, and he brought us into the back room, and it was like a convention of zombies. Nobody was saying anything to anybody. They had four huge cafeteria tables pushed together to make a gigantic table, and everybody was seated, you know, arm's length apart from everybody else, and each person had a pile of uh, herb in front of them with an individual pack of rolling papers, and uh, I had a, a poster uh, that was advertising a show three nights later at the Greek Theater in Berkeley that somebody was passing out in line. And uh, Junior said, why don't you ask Bob to sign your poster? And I go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, right. So he took me over and introduced me to Bob, and Bob was in the heights, man. He was just, he was gone. Did you the see, the did eyes you, were red. What did you see, and, a puff uh, of smoke? <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so I asked him if he would sing Waiting in Vain that night, and he kind of looked up groggily, and he said, well, maybe. <laughs> but, of course, he didn't, because the I-3 wouldn't sing behind it. And that leads me to another revelation. According to Marcia Griffiths, because so many of the songs on Exodus were about, supposedly about Cindy Breakspear, the great love of his life, uh, Rita wouldn't sing on them. And Judy stood out as well in solidarity with Rita, so that the album of the century, Exodus, the backing vocals are all triple-tracked by Marcia Griffith. Oh, wow. See, I didn't know that. Hey, well, you didn't read my book then. No, I, I must have missed that. You haven't read You haven't read so much things to say yet? I got it right here in front of me, Roger. I thought I did. Okay. Well, Somehow I missed. the index to uh, Waiting in Vain, and you'll see that story. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, man. I, what I tried to do with so much things to say is sprinkle it on almost every page with a little factoid that had never been known before, or clearing up a rumor uh, that I wanted to put to rest once and for all. And um, I, I think the book pretty well accomplished that. Um, so uh, what you're about to hear is, is one of a dozen or more alternate versions. Uh, Blackwell never thought Bob nailed the song, but I think this is one of the most interesting ones because it's got a piano solo at the beginning by Tyrone Downey, and you hear where Junior Marvin got the licks for his lead guitar. So let's hear this alternate version of Waiting in Vain.
alternative stuff alternative stuff well it's time we got into some dub icon why not and i have an announcement that i'm going to make on your show this is the first public announcement of something that is tremendously exciting involving dub drum roll um way back in 1994 a young italian architecture student named simone carina uh, called me and uh, said he was a huge Marley fan and could he come and see the archives. And I said, sure, come on over. And he brought me a beautiful clay bust he did of Bob's head, gorgeous, and, and gave that to me for the archives. And, and we were in touch for a couple of years, and then I lost total track of him. And in uh, May, I get a call from him 
from South Korea, from a town called Gwangju. And he is uh, the curator of the Gwangju Design Biennial, which is the second biggest biennial in the world after the Venice Biennial. And uh, they are expecting 320,000 people to come during the months of September and October. And the theme of this year's Guangzhou Biennial is dub. And they are doing a whole representation of me and my life's work and all my books and uh, narrated films that they're going to show there. And it's going to be a big, big celebration of all the different ways dub factors into the life of designers all over the world. And um, it's really exciting to, to know that Korea is finally going to be exposed to uh, dub. Evidently, Marley and dub uh, have not really penetrated Korea the way they have a lot of other places like Japan. Japan, And the other half of this story is what's going to interest you. In June of 1980, Korea was still ruled post-war by a military dictatorship, and there was a gigantic uprising in Guangzhou of 100,000 people. And several thousand people were murdered by the military, but they did succeed in overthrowing the government and establishing a democracy in South Korea. So at the same time the Guangzhou uprising was going on with 100,000 protesters, that same week, Bob was playing to his biggest audience ever in San Siro Soccer Stadium in Milan to an audience of 100,000 people on his uprising tour. So they're making note of that in the essay I wrote. We're talking about that, and uh, they're going to have... a huge crowd being turned on to reggae music in in South Korea. So I'm tremendously excited about that. And that brings us to our next track, which is uh, Running Away Version. Uh, Bob did, as we know, all of the Exodus and Kaya albums at the same time in the winter and spring of 1977 when he was in exile from the assassination attempt. And um, this is a re- I hope somebody is listening on, on headphones. This is a really the best way to hear this particular uh, track. This is an unreleased version of Running Away, and uh, I think you're going to dig it.
There we so, go. So, Icon? Yep. Uh, we're going to skip that next track, number nine, and go to number ten. Because I want to make sure we get those last two things in. Number nine. Number nine is my favorite. Oh, is it? All right. Well, then we won't skip. Oh, that's your favorite. That's right. Okay. It's pure Rasta music. Is that why it is? No. Um, it's just uh, the beat and uh, it's yeah. a little faster and, you know. Well, that's when he was uh, beginning some of his shows with uh, Rastafari chant, and this is another Rasta song called So Long Rastafari Call You, and it's done live in Madison, Wisconsin at the university in 1978. So let's go into that, especially for you.
All right, so there we go. Nice song. Roger wanted to skip. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's a great track. Um, let's see. Uh, we we can go to the next one. Uh, that's that's ten. The rehearsal, and uh, you know, a lot of people ask me over the years how they can get a hold of some of the old shows. Uh, we did eight years of reggae beat shows on KCRW. They were four hours every Sunday afternoon, commercial free, and boy, we took full advantage of that. And um, also, uh, the syndicated show, which was an hour long, which was kind of a, a distillation of the best of the local reggae beat show with the interviews and a lot of uh, live performances that people did in the studio. And uh, uh, we did uh, 178 of those, Hank Holmes and I, and uh, I've been recently making them available to people. Um, so if if you would like a list of the shows that I have available, uh, you can write to me directly at rasroja at aol.com. That's R-A-S-R-O-J-A-H, rasroja at AOL.com, and I'll send you a list of those things. And um, if you happen to ever look at Instagram, my kids have started a site for me, um, and uh, they called it the Family Acid, because they said when they were growing up, uh, their friends told them that our family was like the Waltons on acid. <laughs> It, there's a lot of reggae pictures uh, scattered throughout, and uh, there's uh, stories about each picture, and they're often very interesting comments. So you go to Instagram.com slash TheFamilyAcid, and yes, it is A-C-I-D, and uh, I think you'll find a, a lot of stuff of interest for you there. Um, Time let's go into the, the next track, which is... Uh, the rehearsal in London of 1977, where Bob is teaching the band how to play Time Will Tell. And it's really sweet because he's working with uh, Seiko, his percussionist, who brought him to his first audition at, at Cox and Dodd Studio. And he's telling him how to play the, uh, the percussion, play, uh, play it gentle and build it nice. So it's it's a really sweet look at, at Bob privately with the band. Here's time will tell.
There we go. Yeah. We're going to skip the next track and go to Work, number 12. Work is a song that was written by Seiko. He was coming into town to rehearse with Bob at Tough Gong on a minibus, and he was counting off the miles to himself, five miles to go ho, four miles to go ho, and when he sang it for Bob, Bob said, yeah, I like that, but change the miles to days. And thus, you know, the final song on the album of his last album, uh, Bob is counting off the the, uh, the hours of his life that it, that are left. It's it's a very touching track. So uh, this is a, a rehearsal version of it, I believe, um, that uh, showcases Bob's falsetto. So here is work from the late seventies. Yes, Icon is here. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of falsetto Bob on that nice track. Do you have a favorite song yourself of Bob's? Stiff Naked Fools. Why? Um, it's deep. <laughs> uh-huh. I think that's the deepest song he has. I also like um, Iron Lion Zion just because of the military. Yeah, yeah it's a strong track. Yeah, I like, I like the, the posthumous deep, album. I like the deep stuff. Yeah. And then there's um one drop I like. Um, you know. Ah. Well, why don't we hear the alternate version of one drop? Um it's it's very interesting. Um when they did the the legend album, um 
they came to me to ask me what I thought really belonged on it, and uh, they brought with them a copy of the full version of One Drop. And instead of using that, which we're about to hear with this incredible scat outro, they played the single version, left a space, flipped the single, and played the dub side of it when they could have had this version. So uh, I ask your listeners to pay close attention to this, especially the last minute and a half or so, and tell me which they would have preferred to have and be able to listen to for the rest of their lives. Here's the alternate scat outro version of One Drop.
the fastest two hours in radio, Roger. <laughs> yeah, boy, if that were available, you'd buy it, wouldn't you? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think we'll be able to get all the tracks in. Let's let's do uh, track eleven uh, next, and. Um, before we get away from One Drop, that was an alternate version where he sings, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. So there's no doubt in anybody's mind whose side he's on. And uh, I just love that. I don't understand why that has been in the can all these years. A posthumous track that was made around that same time uh, came out with overdubs from Eric Clapton on it. And we're going to hear a demo of that song now from 19. 79 of Can't Take Your Slogans No More. This is WPKN, WPKN.org.
All right, so you're a lucky bunch. This has been two hours with Roger, 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 <laughs> Ross, Roger. Yes, I. <laughs> Roger, this is fun. It's been fun, and we'll have to do it again at some point. Yes, man. We have time for the bedroom tape now, right? That's right. We, of course we do. Oh, good, good, because there's a story that goes with, with this famous tape. This is uh, Bob, as all of us uh, would love to have known him, you know, the two of us sitting in a room listening to him channel jaw. And it came uh, from um, a tape probably made around 77 in his house in Miami that he bought for his mother. Bob never had a house of his own and bought dozens of houses for other people. Um, and when I finally got to go to Vista Lane in Miami, uh, to Mother Booker's house, um, I thought I was going to find the mother load of tapes and all the stuff I've been hoping to hear. And she says, oh, no, Roger, man, when Bob died, they loot the house and take all the tapes and gold records off the wall and stuff. And all I have now are things that people sent me, like you. And uh, I said, well, there's got to be something. And she thought for a while, and she says, well, you know, I have two 10-inch Ampex reels up in my bedroom, and they didn't go into my bedroom. And uh, let me see uh, what I can find. So she sent her son upstairs to get him, and we opened the boxes, and it was that late 70s Ampex tape, which was really crappy, and they hadn't wound it. They call it a pancake, you know, and it hadn't been wound properly, and the edges were all cracked, and it looked like a box full of rust. The emulsion was falling off it. And um, she gave them to me for 24 hours. And my friend Steve Radzi, uh, who I originally met here in L.A. and eventually moved to uh, Coconut Grove, Florida, and started a show called Reggae Beat East, um, he and I went to the station where there was an engineer uh, on the station, which was called WDNA. He had a machine that could play that outdated format. And he opened the boxes, and he almost had a heart attack. He says, oh, this is going to destroy my machine. But if there's Marley on here that we haven't heard before, we've, we've got to take a chance. So we had to run the tape forward in real time uh, and then backwards to get a clean pancake on it before we ever heard anything. And so and that took about four and a half hours with the two-hour-long tapes to get them in a position where we could see if there was anything on the tape. And it started to play, and there was Bob all by himself singing one song after another. Um, the, the first one might have been called Hot Stepper or Jailbreaker. The jury found I guilty, and I found them guilty, too. I'm a hot stepper, jailbreaker. And um, then there was about an eight-minute section of little pieces, and there was only one thing on the entire tape that we recognized, and you're about to hear that now. So here are P Place of Peace, new song, and a song that you know from his final album, sung here probably for the very first time. This is Bob probably in the middle of the night in his bedroom channeling Jaw on the bedroom tape. All right, this is WPKN, WPKN.org. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
of peace uh, Roger yes all right so I, we you're gonna play the whole thing right we, we actually are up against time <laughs> I wasn't paying attention oh I because it's 354 here we have time to play the rest of the piece don't we um, no we, we're gonna get cut off oh no yep time flies when you're having fun Roger Oh, so you're not on till the end of the hour. We get 6.55 is when we... Um oh, damn, I wish you had told me that. We missed the best part of the song. We, we, we will miss it? Oh, yeah, it's seven and a half minutes long. I wouldn't have played uh, slogans if I thought you were going to get off five minutes early. Oh, what a shame. Man. All right. Okay. I well, sense maybe you can play it on your show next week. Support comes from Paddle for the Sound 2021, celebrating the rivers, lakes, forests, and green spaces of the Long Island Sound region and raising funds for Save the Sound and its work in tracking down pollution sources, preventing trash from entering area waterways, protecting native and migratory fish species, and more. Running from July 23rd to August 1st, participants make this happen just by getting outside and paddleboarding, kayaking, sailing, or walking. More information at savethesound.org slash paddle 2021. So how long you been on this island? I don't know. Man, that sun sure is hot. Got any food or water? Nope. Well, what's on that shelf right there? Those are my five favorite albums. Oh, you mean like your desert island discs? Nope. But this is an island, right? Yeah. 
And it's deserted, right? Yeah. So... That's my WPKN show. I've got Black President by Fela Anukulak Wokuti, Jafumi by King Sanyade, Womat by Senegalese superstar Yusun Du, Walela by Miriam Makeba, and Princess Nubians, the funky debut album by Les Nubians. Well, that's great, Ebang Udama. But do you have any ideas for how we're going to get off this island? WPKN is moving, and our incredible music collection is moving with us. To help fund the new library, we are offering donors the chance to sponsor a shelf. A gift of $89.50 will get your name set on one of our new library shelves. Visit WPKN.org to donate. And while you're at it, use the hashtag MyWPKNShelf to tell the world what five albums you would have on your ultimate record shelf. Designate